invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6, the first seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 6. Now we've gone through uh, the lives of Elijah and now Elisha. And we've been looking at how it is that the Lord has raised up these prophets in this conflict between kingdoms. The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Now, within the history of the people of Israel, God's kingdom established through the line of David has been now divided between two separate kingdoms. There's Judah in the south where the descendants of David continue to reign. And then the north, which we call Israel, there has been different dynasties established. As you remember, the sermon series began with all these different dynasties rising and falling, rising and falling, until eventually one dynasty was established that had lasting power, which was the dynasty of Omri. The dynasty of Omri, whose son maybe is the most famous of the kings in the dynasty of Omri, Ahab. And Specifically, what we have seen is that the Lord has raised up these prophets, first Elijah and then Elisha, to bring about a conflict between these kingdoms, the kingdom of man in the house of Omri and the kingdom of God and its power coming forth through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. But one of the things that we have seen is while there are these major conflicts, whether it would be through war or whether it be through direct conflict between the prophets and the kings, there has also been recorded for us small moments of God's grace in the lives of people that are seemingly insignificant. Whether it would be the life of a widow Or a small band of prophets whose meal has been ruined and needs to be redeemed. Or as we come to in our text this morning, an unnamed man who goes to work one day and makes a mistake. So hear now the word of the Lord, 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you and we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for 
the stories of these unnamed men and women whom Your grace and redemption changed their lives. O Lord, would Your Word this morning as we come to it or change our hearts that we might know Your grace and kindness towards us. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. The movie Casablanca may be one of the most famous of all time. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, it takes place right at the very beginning of World War II. And it's about a man named Rick Blaine, who is played by Humphrey Bogart, who runs a nightclub in, you guessed it, Casablanca, Morocco. And one night, his old flame, his old girlfriend, Ilsa, shows up with her husband, Victor. And Victor happens to be a leader in the French rebellion against the Germans. The Nazis are on his tail, but Ilsa knows that Rick is the only one that can get them safely out of Morocco so that Victor can continue his work. During the process of planning their escape, Rick and Ilsa fall in love again. And as the climax of the movie approaches, everything leads you to believe that the two of them together will escape and they'll leave Victor to his own fate, leave him to the Nazis. But then in one of the most famous scenes in movie history, Rick reveals that he has given up his own plane ticket out of the country so that Victor and Ilsa can fly to safety. He explains Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilsa, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. In the climax of this movie, Rick comes to see That in the face of a world war, the issues of their lives are very small matters. In the conflict between kingdoms, between world powers, the love between these three different people, this triangle of love and the confusion, the conflict that brings, really doesn't amount to a hill of beans if it would interfere with the efforts to defeat the Nazis. And it was this realization of his own insignificance that allowed him to act in the most noble, in the most significant of ways. What we find in our text would seem to be a situation that doesn't amount to a hill of beans in the crazy conflict of the world of the 7th century B.C. Israel. We're not talking about kings and generals. We're not talking about events that changed the course of history or really that had much to do with the reestablishment of the Lord's worship in Israel. In our text, we have an unnamed man who has a need that seems rather small. And despite the fact that his problem doesn't seem to amount to anything, the Lord of the universe intervenes to show his concern. As we read, the place where the prophets were living had become too small for their needs. 
And so it was time for them to move. And they find this new strip of land to build on. And one unnamed prophet, trying to do his part, borrows an axe from a friend or a creditor of some sort and starts to do his bit. And yet, while he is swinging his axe, the head of it falls off and goes into the Jordan River behind him. Now, a few things we need to keep in mind. First, an axe head would have been very expensive. And two, there were no divers who could go and fish the axe out of the water. It was gone. And this prophet was in trouble. For he had borrowed the axe and therefore the chances that he had the money to pay back his creditor is very small. Well, this problem doesn't seem to be that big to us. It may have been very big for this unnamed man. And yet the Lord in His grace moves to recover the axe head. Through the prophet Elisha, He causes this axe head to float and to be recovered. And what we learn this morning from the Word of God is that we see our weakness But in our weakness, we can begin to live for God's glory. Now, the first thing that this text reminds us of and that we need to establish, if we would live for God's glory, we need to see that our own lives don't amount to much in this world. Now, I'm not saying that you're not important in your own way. I'm not saying that your life is without meaning. You've been created in the image of God and therefore you have worth and dignity. You have roles that are very important to play as a father, as a mother, as a sibling, as a child at work with friends in your community. You have important things to do. However, what I am saying is that in a world of 7.4 billion people, your life is only a very small fraction of the story of what is going on. Even the most well-known and important of us in this room will be forgotten in a generation or two. And in a few generations, your great-grandchildren will struggle to remember your name in the major events of your life. And your great-great-grandchildren are going to have to consult a family tree to even remember your name. But this is not a bad thing to be insignificant. It's normal. Our lives are mostly made up of very mundane and boring moments. Most of your time on this earth will be spent doing things that will never make it on the news or into a book. Most of your life is filled with driving to work and making dinner, sleeping and brushing teeth, watching TV and performing repetitive tasks at work. Writing emails that may never be read. Preparing lessons that will soon be forgotten. Your day is made up of waiting in line, waiting for traffic, waiting for pictures to load. You run through the same routine day in and day out. And the plans and decisions that you believe are so important are seemingly very small. I believe that much of the draw of social media is to try to defy this reality. Right? There is a desire to take these moments, these mundane moments of our lives, and to share them with the world to immortalize or at least raise them above the mundane for a moment. 
I mean, what other reason could there be for posting what you ate for dinner? Or your new shirt that you bought than to take what is inconsequential and try to make it important, to try to raise it above the reality that it's just mundane, that our lives really aren't that interesting. You see, our unwillingness to accept the mundane nature of our lives makes us discontent with whatever we may be doing. We get bored with our mundane job and so we believe that it's time to leave it. We get bored with our family and the tasks of family and we become discontent and we decide it's time for something new. We get bored with friends, with food, with chores, with pets, with gadgets. We get bored with everything. And we're sold on the idea that the Hollywood model is how a life will be raised to significance. We believe that we can live significant lives and we confuse drama with fulfillment and change with significance. And yet the reality is your life isn't all that exciting. Nor was it designed to be. And until we are willing to accept this reality that we, of all the people that we see in Second Kings, are most like this unnamed prophet then we'll never be able to rise above it. To live for something that is truly significant. Now again, I'm not telling you that your life is without meaning or pointless. I'm actually leading to the opposite conclusion. But we need to get this truth straight in our minds. The majority of us are not kings like Ahab, or prophets like Elisha, or great generals like Naaman. Most of us are like the unnamed man in our story who goes to work one day and makes a mistake and needs God's grace. And this reality shouldn't bother us. For the Apostle Paul tells us that we should strive, that our aim in life should be to live peaceful and quiet lives which are godly and dignified. Elsewhere, he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think with sober judgment. Just like this prophet, our names will be forgotten. But that is not a bad thing. When you soberly judge your life, you will not think of yourself more highly than you should. When you see the weakness of your life, you will be able to live for something higher than yourself. When you stop seeking your own glory, you can begin to seek God's glory. Now, I once heard somebody say, if we could measure what God likes by the variety of forms He makes then his favorite animal has to be the beetle. You see, beetles make up 30% of all animal species in the world. It's estimated that there are half a million species of beetles living in nearly every natural habitat. Why? Why has God chosen to make so many different types of beetles? Why can't we just have one or 20 or... 30 types of beetles in this world. Why has God chosen to care for, to design and to create hundreds of thousands of different types of beetles? Beetles that we never see. Beetles that will never be classified just for the sheer number that are around. Well, 
I don't pretend to know the mind of God on beetles. But what I do know is that God loves what we might think is mundane or boring or pedestrian. He loves and cares for what is normal and seemingly insignificant. Jesus tells us that the birds of the air are fed by the Lord. That the fields are clothed with beautiful lilies. Jesus tells us that even the life of sparrows are in the hand of our God. God loves the little things of this life. He calls the little children to Himself. He loves the small tasks and the forgotten moments of your life. While everyone else will forget you, He will not forget you. For the reality is, that on the day of Christ's coming, there might not be one person alive in the world that remembers who you are or remembers your name. But when the Lord descends and comes, He will call you by name and you will rise from the dead if you are in Christ. Yes, you will be completely forgotten by everyone in this world, but you are known by God. And that is what is so amazing about the love of our Lord. It is not restricted to those whom we might deem worthy, but rather the love of God flows to regular, insignificant, mundane, everyday people just like you and me. The Apostle Paul tells it how it is to the church in Corinth. I love how he doesn't pull any punches here. He says to the members of the church in Corinth, for consider your calling, brothers. Alright? Think about it. Why were you called to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Translation, God did not choose you because you were something special. He chooses and He saves those who are a bunch of lowly, ragtag nobodies so that His glory might show forth. Peoples whose lives don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world, He desires to save and to redeem because He loves them. You see, if God were only interested in the power players, the wealthy, the famous, then His scope of care would be rather small. But this miracle of a floating axe head reminds us that the Lord's heart is for the no names in this world. As the axe head floats to the top of the water, it should be a point of hope for you. It seems trivial compared to raising someone from the dead or directing international geopolitical figures. Yet this axe head was important to this man and therefore it was important to the Lord as well. And while the book of Kings records wars and prophecies and resurrections, it also records ruined stews being cured and lost axe heads being restored. We again see 
that if the Lord is not interested in the small things of our lives, then he's not interested in very much of our lives. But oh, the joy of realizing that the Lord is concerned with how you're going to pay for your groceries, how you're going to send your kids to school. He's concerned about how you clean your dishes and how you play soccer. The Lord is concerned about your dentist appointment and the procedure that you're going to have next week. The Lord sees and is interested in the little things of your life and none of them pass by His attention. And what we learn from this passage is that the Lord desires to bring redemption to even the small aspects of our lives. The mundane tasks of life are His domain. The way that you treat your wife. The way that you act and think concerning your parents. The way that you eat, the way that you drive, the way that you work, the way that you sing, even down to the way that you think and plan. Every single aspect of your mundane, little and unimportant life is given dignity and worth and value because they are opportunities to show forth the love and the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord loves the mundane because it is in the small and mundane that His glory shines forth. You see, when we call a man or a woman or a child to believe, we call them to give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of you here who have joined this church have professed that you have given your life to Christ. What does that mean? It means that you've given Him the boring life that probably won't get 15 minutes of fame. But the Apostle Paul tells us, so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God wants everything. So give Him everything. Don't merely... Give Him big things. Give Him little things. Bring all aspects of your life under His Lordship. Give Him your worries and your anxieties, no matter how small or boring, because the Lord loves these things. And since our lives are filled with these small aspects, these small mundane tasks, it means that God loves and is interested in your life. For it is the small, weak, and simple things of this world in which His glory is shown forth in power if you're not willing to give him the little things of your life then you're not willing to give him your life and so give him all things you see to live for god's glory as we must then we have to know that we're weak we must know that god loves our weakness and the third thing we must know is that god's power is displayed in our weakness. And in our passage, we see the power of God displayed in the weakness of this unnamed prophet to retrieve his borrowed axe head. We tend to understand this world around us and the things that happen through metaphors. In the 20th century, the main metaphor that was used to understand the world around us is that of a machine. The world is like a machine that was designed and built and set to work according to certain laws and design. And this view of the world tended to make things extremely mechanistic in how we looked at it. That is, everything in this world could be explained and every event could be predicted. 
Nothing was special or supernatural. Everything just fit within the machine. Now, this metaphor of the world as a machine has begun to be replaced now by understanding the world as a computer in which there is a separation from reality. In particular, we think of this world through the metaphor of a computer and the human mind is spoken of as being wired and being programmed towards certain things. Now, there's nothing wrong with using a metaphor to help describe the way the world works. But the problem comes in when we forget that we're using a metaphor and begin thinking that the world really is a machine or that our minds really are programmed. We begin to confuse our metaphors with our realities. And when we allow ourselves to view the world this way, we lose the awe and the wonder of the reality of God's created order and the very loving and intimate way in which He is involved in every aspect of our lives. We have lost our ability to wonder at the world because we are convinced that everything is just running according to programming. But the reality is, is that everything is not occurring according to a program or according to mechanical laws. Rather, everything is occurring because of the power and of the grace of God. It is according to His providence and hand of power that the world operates in a predictable manner. And it's by His power that the world is upheld. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being. You see, the axe head fell to the bottom of the river in this text because the Lord God of the universe decreed that that would happen. That is the reason that it occurred. That is the ultimate power behind it slipping off the end of the handle, flying across the field and plopping down in the middle of the Jordan River. It was according to God's eternal decree. But it was also his hand of providence that caused the axe head to float back to the top of the water. You see, people balk at the idea of an axe head floating, of iron becoming lighter than water somehow. People balk at the idea of a man walking on water because they believe that a law of nature must have been broken, right? The, the mechanism that runs this world has been violated, But our laws of nature are nothing more than a description of the way that God usually works in His created order. The world is not a machine that gets broken when it doesn't work the way we are used to it working. It is not a computer that must work according to its programming. It's a creation that is controlled by our almighty God. And there are times when He works in different ways. He isn't breaking any law of nature when He his iron to float to the top of the river he is simply acting according to his power to bring to pass whatsoever he ordains will occur it isn't any harder for him to make iron float than it is for him to make iron sink it's his world and he does as he pleases and this means that all the mundane and boring aspects of our lives are to be transformed into moments of awe and wonder and worship. Life becomes deadening when it's viewed as mechanical or programmatic. 
But when your eyes are open to the reality that everything you do in this world is in the hands of the Lord, it should fill you with awe and with wonder to see, to feel, to taste, to touch, to think, to breathe, to sleep. Every moment in your life is an act of God's direct grace towards you. It is a miracle given to little insignificant you. We do not live in a machine that if we put the proper input in, we will get a determined output. We live in a creation cared for by a loving and powerful God. And when we come to understand this, it will make it so that we will stop trying to make a mountain out of our little hill of beans. It means that we can stop despising the boring and unimportant life that we live because in reality, the life that every one of us lives is a life that is filled with the power of God's attention and care and grace. Each moment in your life is a miracle from God. We don't have to imbue our lives with significance by raising them up and posting them online. That's vainglory. Rather, we must see that God's mercy and power bring significance to our lives. And for those of you who are in Christ, by God's grace, all these blessings have been purchased for you by Christ. For Jesus went to the cross to purchase your salvation, the forgiveness of sins. But He also, in dying for you, paid for every blessing that you receive in this world, Christian. The pleasure that you receive in waking in the morning and seeing the sun rise. The Sunday afternoon meal that you are looking forward to. The clothes that you wear. The home that keeps you warm and dry at night. His grace covers every aspect of His people's lives. He redeems even the most insignificant moments and therefore makes the most unimportant aspects of our lives significant. Why? Because every moment is the result of God's love and grace. For the redeemed, every little moment is a blessing bought with the blood of Christ. For every moment is leading to and culminating in your eternal salvation. And this grace He offers to all who are willing to stop seeking immortality through elevating their own lives and humbly accept that they are weak and small and sinful. It's offered to all who were turned to the Lord Jesus in faith, trusting that He died to cover their sins and to elevate their lives. And to those of you who have given your life to Christ, have your eyes open once again to see the Lord's love for the mundane. Have your eyes open to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though your life doesn't amount to much in the eyes of the world, yet to Him your life was worth dying for. On this Sunday before Memorial Day, we remember those who embodied this reality, who gave their lives for the lives of others. We remember men like John Haynes, he was a young man who not many of you have heard of, maybe no one except for one or two. He was a Vietnam medic, and he was called Dr. or Doc Bobby. And on March 6, 1968, his unit came under ambush. The report says that five members of his unit were severely 
wounded. And yet he fearlessly moved from casualty to casualty, giving first aid that he might save the lives of the men in his unit. He was willing to not look to the safety of his own life, but he looked to those who were around him. He was struck by enemy fire in the midst of helping others, and yet he kept on caring for others. And finally, he saw his platoon sergeant seriously wounded out on the field, and he rushed to his aid. And as he rushed to his aid, he was mowed down by machine gun fire. And he gave his life. A life given To save the life of many others. To serve a purpose that was higher than his own life. He had to first be willing to offer his life, to lay down his life, to raise, to rise to a point of significance. Christian, to live for something that is higher than yourself. To go beyond the vainglory of elevating your own life. You have to be willing to lay down your glory. And see that it is God and in God alone that we might live for something more than ourselves. That we might live a noble life. For it's when we see that we are small that God's power, that God's glory shines forth. So I call you Christian. Listen to the call of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, He who would follow me must take up his cross daily and follow after me. Lay down your life that you might live for the glory of God alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to You and we confess that we seek to elevate ourselves. We seek to glorify our own names. Oh, would You give us grace to turn from such vainglory that we might glorify the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life to redeem our lives. Oh, Father, we pray that we would be offered to You totally and completely eagerly and without delay. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.